Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. And this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. Folks, today... This is a special day because today happens to be the 100th episode of Recovery is Possible. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And it's been special for me and everybody in my world. And I'll tell you, there are times when you sit back and you wonder if you're doing the right thing, if you're helping anyone. And it just so happens that this evening, as we were sitting down to do this podcast, uh, I had a call from a friend of mine that he wanted to let me know that he was listening to one of these episodes and heard something that really appealed to, to him. And in fact, the, the comment in one of the episodes was, uh, you know, treatment gets you to stop drinking, but the 12 steps help you not start drinking. And for whatever reason, that was a message that this particular individual needed to hear and it resonated with. And, and I tell you, that was so special to hear that because in the, the times when you you wonder if you're on the right direction, right path, if it matters, if it, you know, if you're reaching anyone, then you get a phone call like that and it just kind of puts the wind back in your sails to keep doing this type of work. And this episode, I wanted to reflect on these 100 episodes and this is the third season of Recovery is, Pod, Re- Recovery is Possible and just kind of talk about sort of the evolution of the program, uh, some of the things that we've done, some of the things that uh, I want to look at in the future and, and work on and just just the overall effect of the whole thing in recovery in general, because I, I think that's something that it's important to do, particularly in recovery, is to go back and reflect on the past, look at what went well, what didn't go well, where do we want to go in the future, and have that plan. Along those lines, I have someone with me that was a guest on this podcast. Actually, is episode number one. She is episode number one, and there's another episode where she's talked about family programs. So in episode one, she talked about her story with her husband, and then later she talked about uh, Al-Anon and the other family programs that are out there. So if you haven't heard those, uh, this is Lily, and Lily was a guest before. Check those episodes out. So with that, Lily, thanks for coming back on the program. Thanks, Mike. Can't imagine it's uh, been 100 episodes. Congratulations. That's awesome. I know. You didn't bring me a cake or anything. No, sorry. Okay. Maybe you, well, you can make it. Maybe the 200th episode. We there can you go. do it. There you go. Um, and by the way, we, we are also getting ready to approach, uh, I think, uh, over 10,000 downloads, which is amazing. And I want to start off with... One of the things that hit me, this whole podcasting business is new to me. I'd never done it before. I didn't even know what a podcast was, frankly, until we started this. And what hit me, Lily, was the breadth, the the reach this sort of a platform happens. You know, I can see where people are downloading the podcast, not only across the United States, which is really what I was thinking about, you know, because I live in the United States, but I didn't realize how many people around the world listen to this program. That's astounding to me. And that just means that there's an interest. You know, this this program is not advertised around the world. It just means that people have to go look for this. 
they have to go looking for this topic and then dial into this particular podcast. And that stunned me at how important this message is and how much hunger there is to hear this sort of message. What do you think about that? Yeah, Mike, I think you're absolutely right. I was just talking to a friend uh, who's in the program with me, and we were talking about how COVID has really made an impact on society. And and with that has been a hunger for podcasts um, and just having a, various mediums to be able to be in contact with other people. I mean, during COVID, we were all isolated. And and I know in your case, you started up the podcast during COVID and um, and- and it's not just your podcast; it's just podcasts in general, right? And um, and I think that's good. I, you know, it's we were not meant to be isolated, to to be alone, and so these avenues, you know, using technology as a means to be able to reach out and um, communicate with other people, and then to find out what's going on with them at their at their uh, you know deepest levels. Um, sometimes we have conversations that are very. Um, surface level but the podcasts uh, have have given you an opportunity to talk about a lot of things that really touch um, folks lives that are happening behind behind closed doors and having someone uh, that you can listen to that you feel that you identify with and then what's nice about the podcast is you can always hit the rewind button mm-hmm. and oh i missed that let me go ahead and listen to that again and you can send it you can forward it on to other people you can uh, like you say save it re-listen to it yeah absolutely yeah that's that's true and so i know that um i've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and um you know you've had a variation of many many different kind of guests i mean you've had ceos of treatment centers all the way to individuals who are who are early in recovery to clinicians to i mean just a whole gamut of different people that um you've affected um you know that you've been affected by, and and I I know for me I I've really been touched and uh, positively affected by by your podcast. So I thank you for that. Was there any particular episode that stuck out? I mean, th- there's a wide variety, like you've said. Of uh, we even had somebody that their story was made into a Hollywood movie. Uh, we have the the sheriff's deputies out in New Mexico that are uh, rowing across. The Atlantic the, this this coming year they're in, in for, uh, they're in training for that now to raise uh, awareness about suicide. Just a gamut of episodes out there. So if you're new to this program, there's a there's a lot of material, a lot of diverse material that you can listen to. It's all related to recovery, but um, diverse in that field. Anything that stands out to you that really meant a lot, you know, other I, than your own, other than the one that you were. Well, yeah, yeah, but um, the one that actually I didn't I haven't listened to be honest to all of your podcasts, but one particular one that I've been interested in is uh, you had a therapist that was on your program and she was explaining EMDR. Oh yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. she had been teaching it Helen. for a while, and um, so I had a uh, a recent um, episode in my particular family where uh, we had a death in the family. Mm. And, um, and so it triggered some thoughts in me. So I had heard about EMDR, but, but more just from an educational perspective. But then we had a death in our family and, and it had triggered some thoughts in me that had occurred 30 plus years, oh, 20 plus years ago. And um, I actually had an opportunity to see a therapist and 
she walked me through EMDR. Oh, you did it. I you actually, did it yourself. Okay. I actually did it myself with, with the help of a, a therapist who specialized in it. And um, having gone through it and physically actually doing it myself, it was powerful. Mm. But it, it, but by you having that therapist talk about it, introduce it, um, it made the idea of doing it less threatening. And so I thought, oh, well, here's an expert. And she she talked in a in a way that it made sense to me. And so when I started having these uh, triggers based on the death uh, of our uh, family member, it it opened the doors. I was much more open, receptive to actually trying it. And I was amazed firsthand of how effective it is. Yeah. For our listeners that may not know what EMDR is, and that's eye movement um, reprocessing desensitization. That's what it stands for. That's kind of a complicated title. It it actually took me a while to even be able to pronounce that EMDR. Um, Kind of walk us through that. What maybe? What were the things that your therapist told you about? What is it for? And you know, a lot of our listeners may not even know what that is. They've never even heard that term. So just kind of like the the cliff note version of of why is it? What is it? So I could only um, walk you through in terms of my own experience. And so um, in my particular instant, um, the, the event that had happened with the loss of, of, our, of our loved one was triggering thoughts that had happened to me, like I was mentioning, 20 plus years ago. And so that is what prompted me to go to this therapist. But so she asked me, she said, sometimes she'll have patients who want to just deep dive and just go into that very traumatic episode um, because she explained to me that trauma is trauma. Your body doesn't remember or know or distinguish whether something is a little trauma or a big trauma. It's just trauma. And so, but if you're, the idea is to go back into your memories um, and, and how your past has, is affecting your present. And so I was not one of those folks, oh yeah, sure, let's go deep dive and hit the most um, impactful and um, big traumas. So she said, well, maybe you can find an event that you would be willing to go through just to get um, just to get familiar with EMDR. A different event, not not the event that brought you in there. Yes. A separate right. event. Separate event, but something that almost I... Almost like a test run. Almost like a test yeah. run. And so I, I now teach for a living it's it's um in a college and um so one thing i had mentioned to her i said sometimes whenever i'm teaching in in front of the students if i feel that i'm not doing well or i'm not connecting well with the students um i feel like this um i, I feel nervous like a, there's a pit in my stomach there's tension in my neck maybe some achy feeling in the back of my uh, in the middle of my back and I'll start to sweat a little bit and it's this nervousness of being in front of students and I feel like I'm being condemned or um, being criticized and so she said okay well tell me a little bit more about that and so she was asking me a series of questions in order to get me to home in on this event that happened in my past that was creating some physical discomfort while I was in the classroom. So then she asked me a series of questions and um, she said, well, 
maybe we could talk about that to, to use that as a stepping stone in terms of getting you familiar with EMDR. So the idea, and cause she asked me the question, Lily, do you even know what EMDR is? And I said, well, I believe based on, you know, the, the podcast that you had and, and I'm paraphrasing it's, it's a type of therapy where the therapist walks you through a past event and the idea being is it's it's she safely walks you back in time and then you remember the event um, in a safe manner where she neutralizes it. So it's it becomes a memory and only a memory. You're not having all the emotional um, trauma. Um, and all the um, physical effects and emotional effects of the event, it just becomes a memory. Just like, oh, I went to fourth grade or, um, you know, something like that that's innocuous. And it's just a straight memory. So so that's what I, that's what she was going to try to do was to walk me through an event that would, that would have triggered me, but to remove the trigger. Mm-hmm. And so um, the event that we selected was... Um, well, we walked. She walked me through. We said, "Let's pick that as the event that we're gonna we're gonna use." And so, it was totally online. Um, she wanted to make sure that I had headphones on, um, a computer screen that was in front of me. Oh, this was not in person. This was no. online. Yeah, okay. especially with COVID, they're okay. able to do it wow. online. So I sat in front of a computer with a screen at eye level, and she tried to. Um, so initially, there was these little like balls that would go across the screen and they would make sounds like clock. I mean, well, like tick, 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 tick. And they were at a steady pace. And she had me um, look at the balls um, at the same time, tapping, um, tapping either my shoulders or tapping my knees, whatever was comfortable. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that for me, my eyes would get all cross-eyed and I, I was getting disoriented mm-hmm. by watching these balls. So she said, well, um, Let's not do that. So let's just have you close your eyes and you're going to hear a tone that goes from your left ear to your right ear mm. at a steady pace. And I want you to tap according to what you hear in the headphones. And we're going to do that like 12 times for a count of 24, you know, right, left, right, left until you hit 24. And then I'm going to, we're going to do some breathing. And the idea is to get your heart rate down to a level where you're just relaxed and when you feel no pain throughout your body, because then I know that you're relaxed, then we're going to start the process. So we did that a few times, and then, um, and then when, and then she would ask me uh, to talk about the event, and then she would she would ask me to describe it, and then at some point she would she would stop me, and then she would say, "Okay, let's go ahead and do the tapping, and then the um, the tones." So she would just have me go a little bit further, stop me, talk, you know, talk about the event, stop me, do the tapping. And I think the idea was to um, not allow me to get too emotional um, and then just steadily walk me through the event. And what was interesting in my particular case, uh, we probably did it for about 30 minutes. What is so interesting, Mike, was when I first remembered the event, I all I remembered was feeling that there was this teacher who would yell at us when I was younger, mm. right? Um, but then as she was walking me through my memory, I could visually see myself in the room. I could v- visually see the wooden desk. 
I could visually see the windows to my left. I could see students to my left. I was sitting towards the back of the room, and I could hear the teacher's voice behind me. I, I started remembering all of that. Mm. She said, your body doesn't forget. And so as she recounted the whole event, I realized that she had, prior to getting to me, because I was at the cl- uh, at the back of the classroom, she had asked two other girls ahead of me to read. We were reading out of a book. And I could, by that time, I could, in my mind's eye, I could physically see the book and the, and the, um, the words on the page. And as she was walking me through, I was able to recall that she had one girl read. She wasn't reading. She wasn't speaking loud enough. And so the teacher was telling her to speak louder. And then she went to the next girl, maybe skipped a few people. And this girl wasn't speaking loud. And so she was saying, you need to speak louder. So I was already getting nervous because she was somewhat yelling at the girls who weren't speaking loud enough. By the time she came to me, I was a soft quiet child mm-hmm. and i'm reading and she's like you're not speaking loud enough speak louder and then i felt embarrassed and i started crying mm. and she said stop crying read louder so i started crying and after she had stopped me and then you know we started doing the tapping and then she got me in a state of calmness she said what's interesting with you is as as i brought you back you started talking like a little girl. Interesting. And and I felt the same feelings as as when I was in that classroom. But you know the first thing after she started talking and we were talking through the event, a a um aha moment came up where I'm like, excuse my words, I, I won't perfect, I won't cuss, but you b word, right? Yeah. It made me realize that that teacher was abusive. Mm-hmm. Here I am, a little girl, and I'm learning how to read. Well, I know how to read, but she's reprimanding and yelling at me rather than teaching me how to speak clearly and, and rather than being loving and kind. She was mean and abusive. And she, was, she did it to the other two girls, but she was especially abusive to me by yelling at me while I'm crying. Mm-hmm. So... So anyway, as she walked me through and she tried to calm me and then, you know, using the tapping method and she would not release me until all the pain in my, the back of my neck, my lower back, the pit in my stomach had gone away. But what I found from that was it wasn't my fault. It was that teacher's fault. She was a poor teacher, Mm -hmm. but yet that memory, I don't even remember the teacher anymore, but the way she made me feel was the same feeling that I had when I was in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is I've taught a couple more times since that event, that, that angst feeling that I had prior to me doing EMDR with her is gone. Really? Yeah. It's amazing. Now, this this is effective for you, and, and I know the people that I've spoken with, they have done EMDR, and it's worked for. They say it's a miracle, um, but it doesn't work for everybody, though, does it? I, I don't think so, and I, I think that it depends. You know, like they say, um, I think that she even said it might take one time, two times, three times. Uh, it's not like a miracle drug where the first time you do it, but for me... Uh, maybe it's because I was able to isolate it to mm-hmm. one particular event 
and I was willing to to be, uh, you know, I was willing to, to be involved in it and to and to allow her to bring me back there. I think that's one of the reasons why it was so effective. You know, um, so in full disclosure, I tried EMDR early on in recovery. I did not find it effective. Now, it'd be interesting if I went back and did it now, because uh, when I did it, I have to say, I think it was at that point where I wasn't sure if I wanted to get well. Uh, I kind of went because I felt like I had to. It was one of those things that I think it was just kind of like checking the box. I don't know how seriously I took it. And one of the key takeaways that I have seen uh, not only with what you're talking about, but patients I work with and myself is you have to have a willingness to want to get well. You know, if you don't want to get well, you're not going to get well. And that's in the years that I've been doing this and in my own walk and all the people that I've talked to throughout the years, the people that don't want to get well don't. They just don't. And so I think that was, a. it sounds like that was a big factor with you is you wanted this to work. So not surprisingly, it, it worked. Do you agree with that? I agree. There was no one who who asked me to go see a therapist. I did it on my mm-hmm. own. Um, she had asked me. I mean, I went with her because I was having these traumatic thoughts. But she was the one that said, oh, well, maybe this sounds, this, you know, because they do like cognitive behavior therapy. I mean, there's different types of therapies you can do. Mm-hmm. But she was the one that introduced, I think that in this particular instance, I think EMDR would be quite effective. Would you like to try it? And because of the fact you had that episode and your guest on there, I had listened to her, then I'm like, sure, I'd be receptive to it. So that that was, it's like all these things had fallen into place mm-hmm. to make it perfect for me to be willing to do what I did. Yeah. So listening to that episode, you found that helpful? Sort Very of educational? Helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's... That, that's fantastic. So check that out, EMDR, if it's something that you think that uh, will apply to you if you're listening to this. Because when we talk about addiction, causes and conditions, right? The condition is that we have a genetic pre-upload and predisposition towards addiction. But it's things that happen in our lives that want us to go to the addiction to check out. We don't want to be present. Uh, ultimately, that's what addiction is, not wanting to be present in the pain that's happened. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You don't go to a 12-step meeting. You know, I, I just spent a, a year interning in a treatment facility, and not one patient, not one came into the facility and talked to us and said, you know why I'm here? My life was going so well. I got up every morning and there were unicorns everywhere. The sky was blue, 70 degrees out, and I got to eat Skittles for breakfast to not get fat or get diabetes. So life was good. And life was so good, I thought I would come here into the treatment center and talk to you nice folks for the next 28 days about my addiction. That that never happened. We never had those conversations. It was always pain, trauma, uh, unhappiness, bitterness, resentments. That's what causes people to come in and you can stop drinking or drugging and if you're listening to this podcast there's probably a reason why you're listening to this podcast it's either you or someone that you know your loved one that needs help and we can get them to stop for a period but ultimately if whatever that cause is is not addressed then you will likely go back they will likely go back to what brought them here in the first place. And 
it is important. Like if your loved one goes to a 28-day treatment facility or a detox or a 90-day facility or longer, you can go to treatment longer or they go to a sober house. Uh, we have a saying in recovery, and that is the same person will drink or drug again. So we have to work on that person and change whatever it is, whatever that, that loop is that's causing them to go back. That must be addressed, or it's just a matter of time before they're back to drinking or drugging. There are a lot of tools out there. EMDR is just one of them, and it, and it is effective. We always say, you know, don't, um, you know, condemnation prior to thorough investigation. Don't just assume something isn't going to work. Give it a shot. There are a lot of techniques out there that are useful, and it sounds, Lily, like this was effective for you. And I've known a lot of, for you know, my world is mainly first responders. A lot of first responders say that it works. There's other things. Meditation. I know you're into, and, and I'll have you talk about that. Mindfulness, meditation, uh, acupuncture, uh, yoga, getting into exercise programs. That's very helpful because usually when people get deep into the recovery, uh, all of those things are at the window to include exercise. That is a tool that can be used to assist in, in recovery. And I've talked about that in other podcasts. But you and your teaching, because Lily, you mentioned that you are now an instructor. I know you've really gotten into mindfulness, meditation, um, relaxation, those types of things, because you kind of suffer from anxiety and, and you tend to be stressed as well. We're in the Washington, D.C. area, and this is, if you guys aren't familiar with it, this is a high-stress place to begin with. But maybe touch on some of those other things. So EMDR, but you're, you're using other things as well. What are you using? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's a really good point, Mike. You were saying that, um, you know, you have the alcoholic or the drug addict. Um, they've been self-medicating themselves in order to deal with the stresses in their life. And so... Um, I know that you've talked about the meditation and there's different things that, that uh, you know, the treatment center that you work at offers a lot of ways to um, soothe yourself, right? Instead of using a drug, you've got to replace it with something that's more healthy, whether it's exercise or meditation or... Proper sleep. Proper sleep. Sleep hygiene, things like that. Yeah, yeah. but you know what? From, from a Diet. From a family member's perspective, the same thing that you're expecting the alcoholic or the drug addict to do it, even in my my circles within the family program, the same thing has to apply. We also need to exercise. I mean, because typically before the alcoholic, I mean, when we're living with an active alcoholic or an active drug addict, we are so obsessed over them that we stop taking care of ourselves. Well, in the program, we talk about taking care of yourself, putting yourself number one. You know, when the mask comes down from the airplane, you put it on yourself before you give it to your child. So meditation, exercise, getting appropriate sleep. You know, you hear about don't not being hangry, um, using the principles of HALT. Uh, I try to avoid being hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Um, I picked up like, um, there's a, there's a, I'm not endorsing it, but I mean, it's one, a program that I, I use. It's the Calm app. Um, I actually saw a commercial on it for the very first time. and um, But there's other programs that are out there that help you with breathing exercises, along with uh, learning how to meditate. Um, just ways to, in a healthy way, soothe yourself um, instead of relying on, on some substance or process addiction or something else that's out there that, um, that 
that it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. And so I've certainly have, um, uh, I have a, like a sleep app that, that, um, I, that records cause I, I've been do- diagnosed with sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And then, so I want to be able to analyze the quality of my sleep. Um, so I, I use that app so I can see, and, and I can also provide it to my doctor too. So sleeping is so important to me. Um, exercise COVID has not been friendly to me. Um, I, I have not been as active as I have wanted to, but luckily with the weather getting warmer, um, I'm picking up some sports that I that I enjoy, uh, doing meditation, um, and you know when I'm at work, uh, just not being glued to the computer screen for eight hours on end. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a um, some folks will have like a Pomodoro timer, so every hour on the hour or some people put it like 20 minutes. So at every 20 minutes, you get up for 20 seconds, you look 20, 20 feet away, you know, put your arms up, counter things, you know, in terms of trying to um, counter the effects of sitting too long. So some really concrete things to just get that blood circulation and just, you know, be a little bit more um, healthy. And I know that at my work, they have like meditation Mondays. I mean, they have, you know, especially with COVID, they're, they're really focusing on the mental health, mental, um, you know, your mental state, and then just focusing on mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. I like that, mind, body, and spirit. And what are you, you talked about COVID and the the lockdown. Now, you're, you're more on the family side of the addiction, you know, helping the family members who have their loved ones that are suffering from this. What was the big trend? This, I'm going to be doing a lot of talking about what my impressions are on the effects of COVID and how it's affected the recovery community over the last couple of years. That's kind of a direction I'm going to go in in this next year. But from the family perspective, you know, what what are you seeing? You know, so I, I sat down today and spent, wow, a good four hours with a dear friend of mine that um, I haven't seen in a couple of years because mm. of COVID. You know, we uh, I, last time you saw her was pre-COVID. Yeah, it was yeah. pre-COVID. And so we sat down and um, she's been doing some wonderful things since I last saw her. And one of the things I did not know um, is that Al-Anon, uh, the headquarters is in Virginia Beach. And, mm. you know, prior. I actually to, didn't know that. Mm-hmm, and yeah. prior to that, you know, most of the meetings in the D.C. area, I mean, over 150 meetings just in this area alone. Per day. Per, uh, well, I don't know if they're meeting per day, but there's mm-hmm. just 150 meetings oh, okay. that have registered with, with Al-Anon headquarters. And so she was telling me, though, that pre-COVID, you know, most of the meetings in our area were in person. I mean, there were a few telephone uh, ones and maybe online, but when COVID hit, we went all online. Yeah, they were shut down. Yeah, and so she said to me that Al-Anon, they used to have um, district meetings, meaning like in a particular area, like I was in a particular district that there were like 10 meetings that met that week that fell under that district. Well, because of COVID, they now have... um, regions like they have meetings that are solely with the intent of being online all the time so they actually have group reps who are of regions because they are considered non-geographical meetings Mm. she said she went to a meeting where 
where there were, I don't know if it was, um, oh, she went to a meeting. There were 500 attendees all around the world. So it has opened up. I mean, you know, there are good things that have come about, you know, from COVID and the respect in this particular case. Whoever thought that we would have church that would be streamed, you know, like, like all over the place, right? Or meetings that you would have 500 members and Al-Anon would expand globally far more than it did even prior to, to um, you know, to COVID. So I was not aware that all that was going on. I think that's wonderful. Absolutely It is. Wonderful. It's wonderful. But there's some downsides to that too. Talk about the downsides. Well, I think the downsides, I, I think, well, especially if you're, I mean, that, nothing beats being in person. Mm-hmm. Like one of the classes that I teach is on communication, having constructive conversation. And part of that is how important nonverbal communication is as part of your conversation. And so many times, um, you know, if you have a big meeting and everyone, you know, no one has their camera on, you don't know if they're really listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the meetings that I, ho- that I have that are uh, in person, we all turn our cameras on. I think it's important. Um, and plus, if somebody drops in and you don't know who they are, it, it kind of makes you uncomfortable, right? Especially if you're talking about deep things. And so the meetings that I go to, they are online, but but everyone has their camera on. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes a difference. And so I think that um, you, you have to have some sort of, if you're going to do it online, you've got to have some sort of rule set. And if you want to maximize your conversation, and people feel psychologically safe, you need to set it up such that it's conducive where they feel sh- uh, safe to share. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do with the person that just feels so, you know, and it's true in uh, recovery meetings as well. Do you have those people that just feel so ashamed that they don't want to, for, they, they think, oh, somebody might recognize me or they'll, they'll see me and they insist on, yeah, I'm not turning on my camera. What do you, what do, you do with them? I actually haven't had a situation like that, Mike, because most people mm. will have their cameras on, at least for us. I've seen it in recovery meetings, though. So what yeah. what have they done in your in your particular case? Well, uh, is and if you're new to this world, the recovery world, you know, this is not a shaming place. It's not a place that you know, people are hurting enough, and we don't want to create any more harm. The meetings I've been at where that was the case and we did we had one individual that for nearly a year wouldn't show his face and but we all understand i mean we've all been in in that place and they're very gracious and and just let that let it go uh it's not become an issue i think that in the future uh now that this seems to be sort of the norm to do zoom meetings or uh, distant meetings like that i think it may have to be addressed down the road because eventually you're going to have somebody that says that makes me that person i've never seen their face before i don't really know who they are uh you're going to have to set up a a rule now i'll tell you something that i heard the other day and this is something that will have to be addressed and and if you're not familiar with 12-step meetings they have what's known as a group conscious meaning the group is as a group will decide there's certain rules that uh, are going to apply that's specific to that particular meeting. I had an individual say to me recently that they were on a, a meeting, an AA meeting, and they were the speaker of the, the meeting. It was a speaker's meeting. And somebody in the group uh, recorded the, the meeting, 
without getting permission to do so. And then this individual found out later that that person shared what this person said, and they were telling their story. He shared it with some people. I'm sure with good intentions, they probably thought that that message was going to help whoever they sent it to, but they didn't get their permission. The person that was speaking did not know that they were being recorded. That, I think, is going to be the bigger issue going down the road. But again, I think that's something that each individual meeting will have to address and, and, and put that um, in in their rules, in, in the group rules, but that could become problematic. Remember, uh, this particular group is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's Alcoholics Anonymous, and we don't share things outside the meetings. And that's fairly e- easy to control when we're face-to-face, but when we get outside of that space, that becomes, you know, how do you regulate that? How do you control that? You really can't. And that's, that's the danger. So, like I say, the Zoom meetings are good and bad, and I think some of the, the the worst we haven't seen yet. Down the road, ten years from now, we're probably going to find you know hear of stories where things really went off the rails. So uh, I'm glad to hear that you haven't run into that yet, but you're starting to see it somewhat at uh, recovery meetings. I think that just a good rule of thumb. And now that I'm when I'm on the Zoom meetings, I think I just assume maybe a good rule of thought. You know, we used to hear this all the time. Just assume whatever you're going to write is going to be public. You know, every email and every text that you send to someone, if you put it through the filter of what if this was put on the internet and this was made public, would I say what I'm about to say? Think about that. Maybe that's where we're going with, with this whole Zoom business. But uh, but there is a lot of good that comes out of it. I, I've gone to meetings around the country. I've gone to meetings in the United Kingdom, um, you know, other countries, you know, people from other countries have attended meetings that I've been at here in the United States. That it was something that was unheard of prior to, to COVID. It's just a new landscape. These are things that the co-founders of AA could have never envisioned, you know, in the 1930s. They could have never envisioned this stuff. So... Yeah, I think that, like in our particular case, I think that because if someone were to attend, um, everyone has their cameras. So maybe they may show up not having theirs and and just by process of just natural elimination, they don't feel comfortable. But I mean, we don't tell someone you must have it on. Uh, It's just just naturally happens that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So this podcast, you are the 100th episode thank you and yeah so it's a special a special time uh have you had talk spoken with anyone that has listened to this podcast and gotten anything particular out of it that meant something to them i can tell you um when i look at the number of downloads guess what the most downloaded episode is you Oh, well, interesting. Number one. It is interesting because this is a recovery podcast, but interestingly, the most downloaded episode is one where you are talking about your experience with your loved one, whereas the whole gist of this this podcast is for the addict themselves. So it just shows me that there's a real fire out there for people to know what to do with their loved ones. I think that you and I have talked about in the past that in this, in the Metroplex, in the D.C. area, there are over, well, at least back when I I looked into it, there were over 300 meetings of AA meetings mm-hmm. and only 150 Al-Anon meetings. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell you? Because for every alcoholic, they're affecting three to five, you know, triple the amount of I've actually of heard average seven. 
people are deeply affected. So that means there's if there if there's three hundred AA meetings, there ought to be twenty one hundred Al Anon meetings, mm-hmm. but there's fewer. And I I I think that um, I, I mean it's a shame. It, it really is a shame. But unfortunately, what I have found is some of them end up being in the meetings, but many of them just leave. Mm-hmm. And um, because living with an active alcoholic or a drug addict is extremely difficult. You love this person, but yet they are choosing uh, not to get help. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the disease. Is the, It's the disease, like you mentioned, it's the disease that tells you that you don't have a disease. Mm-hmm. And so the person who who needs to get help is in total denial but the but they're drugged. <laughs> they're they're they're. But the family member sees it all, remembers it all, and they love this person so much. But they but the the person who's under the influence doesn't want to get help. So who wouldn't be frustrated from that? Mm-hmm. And so it's they leave, and so they're not going to go to a meeting. They're going to leave. Mm-hmm. And so that's it's a shame that it that it is that way. But I think that. You know the the podcast you have it educates people. It it it's meant to take away the stigma, to educate the public in terms of what is addiction, and so from a family member's perspective, it it helps to um, it helps to answer some of those questions that that they have right and. It doesn't make it any easier to live with active addiction or, you know, drug addiction or alcoholism or drug addiction, but it makes it, 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 for me, at least it helps to answer some of those questions that I'm not just, um, suffering for nothing. My loved one is, is not thinking straight. Mm -hmm. So. I may not necessarily need to be in the same room with them. I may need to detach, go get a massage or leave the house or, right, to decompress from it. It's, it makes it doesn't make it any easier, but at least it answers some questions instead of being so frustrated and say, I just don't understand. I think what's frustrating about it is addiction, it's the behavior of addiction that we are very frustrated with. Mm, yes. And that's why it's hard for people to wrap the idea that this is a disease. When we talk about moral behaviors, it's the behavior that comes out of the disease that really people are focused on as opposed to the disease, the disease itself. And the problem with that is that this is really the number one killer in the United States. There, you know, I know we just went through two years of COVID. COVID hasn't even come close to killing the number of people that addiction has. Not even close. And then when you factor in the destroyed lives and the crime and the, you know, all of the byproducts that come out of addiction, uh, it, this is really the problem that we have. But yet, it's not talked about in society um, on Capitol Hill. Uh, it's not addressed. Uh, the president did address it in the State of the Union. President Biden just talked about how uh, opiates are a pandemic, you know, an, an epidemic rather is is the phrase that he used. So it's addressed in the State of the Union um, speech, but yet 
it, we point out that we, we all know what the problem is, and it was pointed out in that speech. But we don't really hear a lot uh, about is the solution, all right? We know what the problem is, but what are we going to do about the problem? And nobody really talks about that, or they, they talk in, in code, and they don't get into specifics. And I think a lot of the reason behind that is people don't really know what to do about it, particularly our legislators. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to do with the families. And consequently, we're sending the wrong message. We're legalizing marijuana. We're, we're lifting um, uh, penalties for you know diff- different criminal activities. And that's a whole another debate. And, that, and it gets rather political. And I'm not even taking a political stance. I'm just saying that the people, the politicians that you hear talk about addiction are not educated in addiction. And that's for both parties. That I'm not pointing any fingers at one particular party because I can talk to any political candidate and they're not really educated in, in this area. What that means is for the public, they, they get mixed messages. They get uh, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. Uh, they feel helpless in all of this. They feel ashamed. Uh, what can we do for the public other than this? Po- one of the reasons we do this podcast is to educate as much as we can. But is there anything besides this education that we that we can do that, that you're seeing? Have you thought about that? Well, Mike, let me ask you. Um, I know that you're you're the host, but mm-hmm. you um, you just like you had mentioned, you just completed uh, your internship at a treatment center, and um, based on on you having been there for mm-hmm. three semesters, um, was there any aha moment for you? Because you you see these patients coming through, and you're working with them, and it's not just law enforcement, or it's the public. Oh yeah, no, no, no. The, the facility that I was at was not. We, we did have law enforcement people come through, but that what's not the focus. This this center was the public. Okay. I, yeah. Oh no, but like you were saying, it's like this. Is there something more that we can do when the patients come through? Are they also very confused? Absolutely, and and good question. I think my aha moment was this. Let me tell you something. Let me <laughs> let me digress a minute and show some ignorance on my part, naivety on my part. When I went back to school to become licensed as a clinician, I thought going into the addiction field that I would need an addiction degree, right, in order to do this work. And when I got to my site where I was doing my internship, by the staff, I was asked, oh, well, what program are you in? And I'm like, what do you mean, what program am I in? What what are you studying? And I'm like, I'm studying addictions, addictions and co-occurring disorders. Oh, okay. So you're you're not being trained to be a social worker. No, I'm being, and I can see by your reaction, you're kind of stunned by that as well. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm training to become an addiction counselor. Why? And what I didn't realize was that there's many different paths where you can work in an addictions facility and actually not study addictions. You can study social work. Now, without opening a Pandora's box into how complicated that be, can become and that and there can and there is a very large debate about the wisdom behind that uh, and why that is done. But I didn't realize that going into the field. Now, let me tell you what that means. 
what it means. It, well, you're talking about somebody that's an addictions counselor, like somebody who's specifically trained, like I am, in addictions. The focus is on the addiction. So you come to a 28-day tr- uh, facility. Your presenting issue is drugs, alcohol, or all the above, right? That's why you're there. Now, while you're there, we are going to look into other issues. Maybe you got family issues. Maybe you have some mental health issues. Maybe you have legal issues. Maybe you have uh, family of origin issues, all those different things. Those need to be addressed, but they're not going to be addressed in those 28 days with us. You're coming to us to get you to stop drinking or drugging, to put you in a position where you can effectively deal with those other, your mental health issues. Because after all, if you're drinking and drug, if you're drinking all day, smoking crack or, uh, you know, heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, whatever, and you're dumping all that into your system. How do we know what mental health issue you have? Because it's being masked by all of your drug use, right? So we have to get you off of the drugs to look at, you know, maybe you don't have any mental health issues. Maybe you do, but we really don't know. That's kind of how I look at this. If you are somebody that comes in with any other training, then your focus is not going to be on drugs and alcohol. Your focus is going to be, hey, you know why you drink? It's because you were poor growing up. You know why you drink? Because uh, you were systemically oppressed because you're a particular uh, you know, worldview, uh, ethnicity, color, those types of things. And that's, it, again, I'm not getting into debate whether that's good or bad. I'm saying it's different. And that determines where the emphasis on your treatment is going to be over the next 28 days. Does that make sense? And so for me, my key takeaway from the year that I was in the internship is, to me, this is just Mike's opinion, I think that dilutes the whole issue. Because I believe that if you are coming into a 28-day treatment facility, first and foremost, we have to stop the bleeding, so to speak. You came in because of your drugs and alcohol. We must address that because if we don't, the likelihood of you successfully addressing any of these other issues is slim to none, okay? Because I can't have you effectively deal with your family of origin issues or the feel the fact that you feel like you're being oppressed because of your sexual orientation or your, um, your skin color, things like that, but continue to drink. Right. I, I, to me, that's putting another issue, a side issue. You know, I think the social work comes in later. I think that's very, very important. But we've got to do, deal with the, the acute. The reason why I'm saying this, it goes back to your original question is, is it confused? Is this process confusing the patients? And I would say my experience, my takeaway, my impression is, yes, it is very confusing to the to the patients. Does that address your question? So I was um, asking that when you have patients who come into the treatment center, they are also very confused about what addiction is. Do they know what addiction is? Not always. Not always. And when you, and I do a lot of training about the disease model versus the moral model, moral disease is this is, are you drinking because you're a bad immoral person or are you drinking because you have a disease? If you've listened to this podcast, you know, I lean towards the disease model and I have to do a lot of reprogramming and re educate or educating uh, the patient. Cause a lot of times when we talk about this, it's the first time the patient has ever heard that. The problem is that they leave the treatment center and intellectually they will understand, yes, I have a disease, but then they go back out into a society that still looks at what they have as being a moral issue. Mm-hmm. 
So intellectually, they can believe it, but in practice, they don't believe it. And then we go back to, I'm doing, you know, because I hear this all the time. You know, man, I know I messed up. I know I messed up. I, I know that if, if uh, you know, I was a crappy father or a crappy, you know, husband, I understand. That's going back into the moral. You're, you're putting moral blame on this. And so, you know, I'll talk to them about the disease, but then they go back to, yeah, Mike, I know I really messed up. And that's what we really have to work on. But one of the goals that I have, lifeline goals, is we have to get our society in alignment with what we're, you know, we, we've heard this a lot over COVID, right, over the last two years. Follow the science. How many times have you heard that? Follow the science. Follow the science. Well, it's funny that we, we, we say that in every area except when we talk about addiction. Mm-hmm. Nobody's following the science. It really is feelings-based. It really is feelings-based. And we're not serious about addressing it. We are not because we are taking no steps to stop the flow of drugs coming into the country. So I I feel like if we were, if we, if our society truly understood the extent of this problem and how debilitating it is to the nation as a whole, we would be taking much more proactive action towards stemming this. And then with the people that are in addiction, really drilling on in on what this is in finding effective ways to prevent it from happening. Because after all, and you know as well as I do, Lily, that the relapse rate leaving treatment facilities is extraordinarily high. We do not have a, a high success rate and, and people who do go to treatment. And, and you and I both know that, that a fraction, a small fraction of the people that need to go to treatment in the first place ever go. And then only a fraction of them get well once they do leave. And we, we need to do a better job, I think, in addressing why that is and coming up with better methods. Well, like you were saying, um, just kind of adding on to what you're saying. So, you know, when you're in the treatment center, mm-hmm. right, it's a controlled environment, right? So it's consistency of thought and everything is there to support the patient and and the issues that they're dealing with. But when they leave the treatment center, then they're back to where they were before. You mm-hmm. still have a lot of confusion. There's this disease versus moral issue. You might come back to a family ha- home where they they don't believe in the more in in the um, disease model. It's all about morality. Mm-hmm. So then you're brought back into that, and that confusion is brought back in. Mm-hmm. So you're mentioning about what do we do beyond that? I think Mike, because there's so much confusion out there, you have to stay the course and continue to push and educate the public on on what addiction is. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much confusion out there and addicts who want to get better are maybe in the treatment center, they're good, and then they leave and then they get confused again. Yeah. So we have to stay the course. Yeah. We really do. And we will continue on with this mission. And that's what we've done in these 100 episodes. And we're going to do that for 100 more, maybe even several hundred more. We don't know. But that's what we're going to do. But th- Lily, I know we've been here for a while, but thank you so much for coming back on the program. Thanks, Mike. And will you come back on? Sure, well. Okay, next time you're going to bring us a cake and sure, you know, we're going to have a party. That. I won't forget. Okay, good. Because I'm holding a resentment over the fact that you didn't bring a cake and celebrate this. And uh, thanks again for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. And uh, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. 
FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. So as I always like to say, listen, we don't represent any group here. I know we've talked about Al-Anon, we've talked about AA, but we don't actually represent those groups. Those are just programs that we're involved in, and you pick any program that that works for you. Um, If I've said anything that doesn't apply to you, or Lily has said to you it doesn't apply to you, then just discard it. But try to take something away from what we've talked about that can help you because it's helped us along, along the way. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing, and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about, because I'd love to hear from you. And you guys, take care, stay the course, as Lily says, keep plugging away, and we will talk with you soon.